that the title for our lesson today is The Birth of Israel. Do you know, technically, they say Israel was born when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. But really, Israel was born the night that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. So here we are, 70 years, you know, 70 is important. You think something special? Well, something did happen very special. You know, what Benjamin Netanyahu said in his speech about Donald Trump is he said that because he knew and understood history, he had made history. And that is, that's true. That's true. You have to understand history. And then I got to thinking, well, we sure didn't. Get, I had several ladies yesterday ask me what we're going to study when we come back in the fall. Lord, Lord willing, we come back in the fall. Who knows? The Lord could come before then. And I said, well, what do you think we're going to study? <laughs> you don't need to ask me that anymore. The rest of my life, we're going to be studying Christ in the Old Testament. We didn't even get through Genesis. And I thought, oh, that's kind of, it's going to take forever. Maybe that'll be one way the Lord will stretch my life and I have to live to be 100. Because <laughs> I am going to be 70 just like Israel. Oh, yeah. We will pick up where we left off. But then I got to thinking, you know, we, even though we haven't gotten very far, and we'll pick up with Joseph. The life of Joseph is an amazing type of Christ, as you all know. One of the most amazing. But Moses is right behind him. And then we'll probably be discussing the life of Moses. He is another, maybe even more complete picture of Christ than Joseph. I know that would shock you unless you were here when we did Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. But it even surprised me. But then hopefully we'll get on to talk about the seven feasts of Israel. And of course the Passover. There's just so much. Have you realized we've covered 2,000 years in this study just since September? So that made me feel not so bad. We did start with the creation. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> so it's not like we haven't covered a lot of territory. We've covered 2,000 years. And we've, you know, covered the first three patriarchs. And have we seen Christ in places that we really didn't think he was? Has that opened your eyes? Have you gotten spiritual heartburn? I know one lady yesterday said she was just wowed because of the names of his sons and how they spelled out the gospel message. That alone. But you remember back in the beginning, the opening sentence of Genesis? We saw the Aleph and the Tav. Remember that? There was Jesus right in the very first sentence because he is the creator. So we've covered a lot, and so I'm not going to feel bad about it. But that's where we're going. That will be where we're going because we have the whole Old Testament to cover and it's going to take quite some time. All right. The subtitle for our lesson is, now try to say this four times in a row, Jacob at the Jabbok. Jacob at the Jabbok. Jacob at the Jabbok. <laughs> the Jabbok is a river where he actually encounters the Lord and wrestles all night with him. So that's the subtitle. All right, we've already had our opening prayers. Did I tell you to go ahead and turn to Genesis 32? We'll cover Genesis 32 and a little bit of 33. And I don't have time to read it, but try to follow along. I'll, I'll tell you the verse in appropriate times, what verse I'm in. You know, from the womb, from his mother's womb, Jacob wrestled with those around him even initiating 
some of those struggles himself. Even in the womb, he was the one who grabbed his brothers, his twin brothers, heel as they're trying to come out of the birth canal. And then he grabbed his birthright in an underhanded way, the beans for the birthright bargain. Later on, he grabbed the birthright blessing, the firstborn birthright blessing, by deceiving his own father, Isaac, his blind, kind of senile father. It was Esau's vengeful hatred of Jacob for that second incident that sent him into exile in Haran of uh, Syria, northern Mesopotamia, where he landed in Laban's lap and experienced payback. It was payback time, right? Chickens came home to roost. We're going to reap what he had sown. Well, last week, or yeah, it was actually last week. I don't have to say two weeks ago. Last week, finally, after 20 years spent in the school of hard knocks, where Laban was the principal, he, he was in his Jacob-Laban struggle stage of his life. Remember how he said you could divide his life in three stages? And there was the Jacob-Esau struggle, then the Jacob-Laban struggle. Well, he finally finished the Jacob-Laban struggle last time. And yet we're going to find now, as he is preparing for his first encounter with his brother, Esau, in 20 years. They haven't seen each other in 20 years. And he's preparing for that. We're going to see that he is still struggling within himself because he's trying to rely more on his own wits and his own conniving than he is on the Lord. So with Genesis 32, we arrive at the account of the third stage now of Jacob's ongoing struggles. And this is the the Jacob Christ struggle. And he lost this one. In this one, he really met his match. He lost this one. But in losing, he actually won. Is that possible? In losing, you, yeah. Well, that's exactly what happened to him. Because a metamorphosis took place in Jacob. Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the supplanter, Jacob the grabber became Israel. He became the prince of God. That's what Israel means. That's a big change, isn't it? So today's lesson is the birth of Israel. The setting for this famous account was near the Jabbok River, as I've said. It's a fast-running tributary that flows into the Jordan River. Jacob is about to re-enter the land of Canaan. He's also about to encounter Esau. But first, before he would encounter Esau, he is going to encounter the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, who took him into the wrestling ring, but not to have a good time. You know, sometimes daddies wrestle with their boys. Sometimes brothers like to wrestle. Boys just like to wrestle, don't they? Even girls like to wrestle. I used to wrestle with my sister when we were little. But this wasn't to have a good time. You know, I thought about if it was today, you know, how they have the wrestling and all the guys do so much bragging and everything. This would be Big Jake versus Bigger Jesus. So anyway, Jesus is the one who takes him into the wrestling ring. And it's to be Jacob's opponent, not his friend, his opponent. But it's all for his own good, isn't it? Because he is going to bring him, finally bring Jacob to the point of both physical and spiritual submission. 
Well, 20 years earlier, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, had told him she would notify him once Esau had cooled off from his vengeful hatred in that he wanted to murder his brother so that he could then return. And she thought it would just be a matter of days. Remember, a few days? Well, she's no longer alive. And he never got that message, as far as we know. He never got that message from his mother that his brother had cooled off. So as far as Jacob knows, his brother still has every intention of seeking vengeance on him. Proverbs 18.19 tells us a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Mm. Jacob's past was about to catch up with him because it was time, finally, to, to face Esau. I almost think that's why he accepted that crazy proposal of working seven years for Rachel and then another seven years for Rachel. And then he stayed around another six years so he would leave with something. You know, because he, otherwise he had nothing. But I think he was not, he was not looking forward to, to encountering his brother again. So we could say if anyone was ever an example of, of jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, it would be Jacob going and coming. Because he had jumped out of the frying pan Esau into the fire Laban on his way out of Canaan. And now he's jumping into the frying pan Esau out of the fire Laban coming back into the land, if you followed that. <laughs> now, over the years, you can imagine that Jacob would have heard from travelers as they're passing through Haran and that area that his brother had grown very mighty. In fact, he was now ruling a nation, a nation that was named for him. Remember his nickname? Red? Because of his red hair or maybe because of his love for red lentil soup, but he was nicknamed Red, which is Edom. He was now the ruler, the king, the duke or whatever it was, over the nation of Edom. Jacob's family, now he's got four wives, so to speak, you know, two, two wives, two concubines. And he's got, at this point, we know of 12 kids, counting Dinah. Benjamin hasn't been born. And then he's got shepherds and he's got some household servants. But his, his little group of people would be no match at all for an Edomite army. And so Jacob, we find he is very fearful. He's very anxious, even though God had promised to be with him and to bring him back safely into the land. He had that promise that he would be brought safely back into the land. But the Lord, knowing his anxiety, still gave him something else to cling to. He gave Jacob right before He's going back into the land and encountering Esau. He gave him a very special gift. And you'd almost miss it if you don't pay attention to every little verse in Scripture. But look with me at verse 32, 1. It says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. That would be easy to skip and miss, wouldn't it? You know what the Lord did? The Lord opened up his eyes. And apparently only Jacob's eyes to see a host of heavenly angels, an army of angels who came forth to meet him. Isn't that exciting? He's about to go back into the promised land, and the Lord sends these angels. They were sent to protect him and his family. When God makes a promise, does he keep a promise? 
When he says, I'm going to return you to the land, is he going to return? No matter Laban, you know, Laban wanted to prevent him from entering the land. Now Esau is going to, you know, perhaps try to prevent him from entering into the land. Has the Lord returned Israel every time she's been in exile? After Babylon? Well, after Egypt, first of all. And then after Babylon. And then even after she was scattered to the world with the Romans in 70 AD. There's another 70. And then she came back to the land May 14th, 1948. And has now been returned 70 years. Yes, he keeps his promise. If he says, I'm going to return you to the land, I'm going to return you to the land, even if I have to send angels to make sure that happens. So the last time Jacob had received a vision of angels was in his dream on his way out of the promised land. Remember the dream, the ladder dream with the angels ascending and descending on the ladder? Now he's on his way back into the promised land. The dream vision of the angels on the ladder was to assure Jacob of God's presence with him and his protection of him even it, when he would be outside of the land. I'm a, the God of the universe. I'm not going to just protect you when you're in the land. I'm going to also be with you when you're in exile out of the land. Why was he in exile out of the land? Because he had sinned against his father. Why was Israel removed in exiles out of the land when she disobeyed her heavenly father? And she had to be chastened, you know, by antichrist types like Laban and Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh of Egypt and Hitler. And anyway, there's a lot of, lot of commonality because Jacob is a type, obviously, of Israel. His own name was changed to Israel. So that's a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> so the, the first time was to assure him that even when you leave the promised land, I will be present with you. My angels will be ministering to you. Now, this second vision of angels was given to encourage him again of God's protection with him. As with the former occasion, remember after that dream, he had named that place Bethel, which means house of God. And he had said even, he made a prophecy that this will be the place of the house of God. Well, so to here, he names this place where he saw an angelic host. He gives it a name and the name is Mahanium. That's a mouthful. But it means two camps or two hosts. In essence, what he was proclaiming is this. I now not only have my own camp, you know, my own little army, my family and my shepherds and my household servants, but I also have God's camp of warrior angels. Do people, do you think, see angels every now and then? You know, you think back in the Old Testament, oh, wouldn't that be awesome to see angels or to see an angelic host? Do you think there's still angels ministering to people today? Do you think maybe there was a whole host of angels yesterday over Jerusalem? And who would be at the forefront of that? Michael, Michael, the prince of Israel. I do believe so. You know, there was even, we, we live in such exciting times there was an amazing, how many of you pay attention to what's going on in the world? I know if you're younger, you're kind of just swamped with kids and maybe you get a clip of news from internet when you uh, uh, go on Facebook or something, maybe something pops up and that's how you keep up with it. I know that's true with my daughters. They don't sometimes have a clue what's going on. But last week, 
we had an amazing thing happen. You know, the Iranians are positioned in Syria to attack Israel. I think we're getting really ready and close to the war of Gog and Magog, which involves Russia and Iran and, you know, anyway. And that could happen even before the rapture. But they shot missiles at Israel. And, of course, her Iron Dome protected her from being struck. But she then, and a nation has a right to defend itself, doesn't it? Duh. So she finally had had enough with all this and fired back, fired back big time. Within 90 minutes, Israel had struck and, and succeeded in hitting 50 Iranian targets within Syria probably pretty much decimated a lot of what they're doing over there. Now, they'll rebuild and all that, but do you think maybe there were angels up there and nobody was harmed? Not a single Israeli pilot. So, I mean, it's just amazing. It's like a miracle. But do you know that since she has become a nation in the past 70 years, of course, as soon as she was declared a nation, all the Arabs were going to annihilate her, and that's her war of independence. Right? Right away, 1948, War of Independence. It was like a David and Goliath thing. She's a little puny David, doesn't even hardly have an army. And, and she won. She won. Then there was the Six-Day War in 1967. Some of us remember that. That only took six days. And she was, wow, she was attacked from all sides by four powerful Arabic nations. Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, I mean, Egypt, excuse me. And that united Arabic force had vowed that they were going to make the blue Mediterranean turn red with the blood of the Jews, annihilate Israel, get rid of Israel. But there were so many reports, and in your notes, when you get the email lesson, I know we're going into summer, and you might be tempted not to read it, and, but do read it. Because I give you a website, and if you have the time and if you have the ability to do it, look up that website and read some of the reports of, of miracles, absolute miracles that took place during that Six-Day War. Even miracles that took place in the War of Independence in '48, and then again in the Yom Kippur War. There are just account after account of eyewitnesses of large beings with flaming swords that people saw in incredible situations where it looked like Israel was going to just be devastated in some kind of a battle and then the enemy will turn around and flee I think there's one case where there's a guy sitting in a tank and he's all by himself and and uh, and then here comes all the Egyptian tanks and he's in this sorry old tank that probably doesn't even work and all of a sudden all the Egyptian tanks turn and go away it's like, what? <laughs> and then later they'll hear from witnesses of the Egyptians or of the Syrians. You know, well, you, he wasn't alone. There was this huge force. Well, it was angels. There's one account, and we had a lady yesterday who actually met someone in Israel who had seen this. One account where all these tanks were coming up against some town. I'm not sure which one it is. But read, the, read that email because it tells you, all, I mean, the website. But... They were about to be devastated, and this giant hand was seen coming out of the heavens 
and pushing them back. And she actually talked. I read about that, but she had met a person who had seen it. It just gives you goosebumps. Actually, the military correspondent for a secular newspaper in Israel called the Heretz Newspaper wrote this. This is a quote from him about the Six-Day War. He said, quote, even a non-religious person must admit that this war was won with help from heaven. End of quote. So it's exciting. We live in exciting times. And yes, there are angels still protecting Israel and you and me. We have minister, they're ministering spirits to us. So Jacob's angel loaded ladder dream gave him strength to face Laban. Now this second vision of God's angelic army was going to help him to face Esau. God allowed him to see the good news, the angelic host, before he heard some bad news. What was the bad news and how did he hear it? Well, (laughs) the bad news was that Esau was coming and he was coming not alone. He was coming with an army of 400 men. How did he hear about Esau's arrival? Well, Jacob, after his vision of the angels, sent some messengers to give, to relay a message from him to his brother. They were told, when you, when you meet my brother, I want you to address him as my Lord. So address him as Jacob's Lord and refer to me, Jacob, as Esau's servant. That's in verse 4. They were to tell, then they were to tell Esau about the great wealth of Jacob, how he had oxen and asses and flocks and men servants and maidservants, that's verse 5. Now that wasn't in order to boast. That was to let Esau know that Jacob was not returning as a beggar with nothing. Now six years earlier, he would have been returning as a beggar. But now he wasn't, he, he, and he wasn't coming to lord it over Esau. Remember that prophecy given by the Lord to Rebekah when they were in her womb, where the elder would serve the younger? Well, Jacob wasn't going to push that point, okay? He, he could claim his first right, firstborn birthright, but he was saying, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, you're my Lord, and I'm going to bow down to you, and I'm your servant. If he had pushed that point, he probably would have been... <laughs> exterminated (laughs) but so he's coming not not as a beggar to lord over Esau or to leech off of Esau or his family he had plenty he had more than enough wait till you see how much he had he's really wealthy he did a lot of breeding with those spotted and speckled (laughs) blemish sheep sheep and goats so much so that he was able to sell them and then buy camels and all. He was very wealthy now as he's returning to the land. You know, Israel always seemed to prosper when they were out of the land. And when they did, then the host country got jealous of them, right? And then it got dangerous for them, and that's why they needed to leave. Well, so what he's doing here, and then in verse 5, if you'll notice, he pleads for grace. He was pleading for what he knew he didn't deserve. He wanted Esau's forgiveness. His desire was to make peace with his brother and to have, to have uh, the hope for reconciliation. He wants to be reconciled with his twin brother. But shortly after he sent out his emissaries, they returned. Now, Esau, Edom was 90 miles south of Mahanium, you know, the Jabbok River. 
so they could calculate how long it would take for the messengers to get to him and then to return. But they came back way too soon. You know what that meant? Esau was way close. He had already heard that Jacob was coming back. I mean, they had people that would give them, you know, spies, and they'd go out and they'd say, your brother's coming back. So he had already left Edom, and he was only two days out from where Jacob was. So they returned too soon, and the report they gave did not sound good at all. Esau was already on his way with 400 men. So two things sounded very ominous to Jacob. Number one, the size of Esau's army. Number two, the silence of Esau's answer. I'm sure he said, what did my brother say when you gave him the message and told him how wealthy I am? And when you called him Lord, my Lord, and you know, what did he say? You know what the answer is? Nothing. That's kind of ominous, isn't it? Because you'd think that if Esau, after his brother is saying, you know, I, I want you to forgive me and showing all this humility, that if Esau was going to forgive him, that he would send back a message like, don't worry, my brother, I love you. Uh, I'm coming in peace. Don't stress out, but there's no message at all. So that's not good news. So the silence only prolonged his agony. We, we learned, look at verse 7. It says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The good thing is, though, his, his fear didn't freeze him. Some people in fear just freeze, don't they? He didn't freeze mentally, and he didn't freeze spiritually, as we'll see in a minute. First of all, he took precaution. He's a precautionary kind of guy, isn't he? He's always, he's always thinking and plotting and planning how he can work things out. So he divides his, his caravan, his, his company, his family and everything he has into two groups. He puts half of his family, half of his servants and livestock in one camp and the other half in another camp, which is appropriate for a place named Mahanium, which means two camps. <laughs> so he divides everything in two camps. And his thinking here, verse 8 tells us why he did this, is because if one caravan was attacked, maybe the other one could escape. Or maybe Esau would think that was all the family he had and the others could be hiding and, you know, get away. Well, he also didn't freeze spiritually because he did the right thing. He took his distress, he took his anxiety and his fear to the Lord in prayer. Yay, it's about time, Jacob. So for the first time, we have a recorded prayer from Jacob. It's in verses 9 to 12. And what he says tells us he did learn some good things in the school of hard knocks, in exile. Every time Israel was in exile, she came back. And she had learned some lessons. Like after her Babylonian captivity, she never again worshipped idols, did she? To this day. Well, they've got secular idols like materialism and stuff, but not physical statues of gods and goddesses. So he had learned, and we know this from his prayer. First of all, he reminds the Lord of his promise. You promised me, Lord, that you would return me to the land and that you would deal well with me. I think that's in verse 9, is it? Verse 9. And then he evidences spiritual growth by confessing his unworthiness. Now, this is a biggie. He declares himself unworthy, verse 10, of God's mercies and God's truths. He confesses, too, in verse 10, that all of his blessings were merely the result, not of himself, 
but of God, God's grace in his life. Because he remembers when he left Canaan, all he had in his possession was his staff. We also know he had a cruise of oil because he poured it on that pillar at Bethel. But he didn't have much other than that, did he? And now he says, because of the Lord, you've blessed me so much, I have two bands, he says, you know, the two camps of his family. And lastly, he brings up his burden, his petition. He says, and this is verse 11, Lord, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother, of, uh, mother with the children. The issue, Jacob himself had caused with his brother because of his own failure to wait on the Lord. The Lord had promised him the covenant blessings that he would be the next one to carry on the messianic line, right? The Lord had promised him that. But instead of waiting on the Lord for the Lord to give it to him in his way, in his time, he had grabbed it for himself. That issue, that's what caused Esau to hate him so much and to want to murder. But that issue had never been resolved because he had hightailed it out of town. <laughs> and so it's just ha- it's been hanging in limbo for 20 years, for two decades. So it was very possible that Esau still wanted to kill him. Now, the original plan was that when dad dies, that's when I'll do it. Well, guess what? Dad just wouldn't die. <laughs> He's still alive. Still alive. But it's still possible, isn't it? Now, what do you think? What do you think is in Esau's mind? He's coming with 400 men? Hmm, doesn't sound good, does it? I think he was coming in vengeance. If he hadn't been, he would have sent some kind of a message to his brother. So it would be difficult enough for Jacob to meet Esau just one-on-one, just with the two of them, because I always get this picture of Esau, you know, being a big burly man. And if they went into the wrestling ring, I think Esau would win. But now he's got to encounter him with an army of 400 men. That would be terrifying. Now remember, he had, Esau was a cunning hunter. We had learned that cunning hunter now he has become a cunning warrior because to conquer the land of Edom he had to conquer the people that had lived there so he is a mighty warrior no wonder the Lord gave Jacob that vision an advanced vision of angelic invisible army you know the angel well angelic means angels (laughs) so from Jacob's perspective if you were in his sandals it's not looking too good is it it is not looking like Esau is interested in reconciliation and in forgiveness. So we're told in verse 13 that he went to bed. Jacob went to bed. Well, there wasn't a bed. He's camping out, you know. So he went to tent or had a stone for a pillow or whatever. And in the morning, he had this plan. You know, he's always planning. So he had a plan, that, and he did it. He was going to send a present, a gift. You know, if everything else fails, just give him a gift. <laughs> Maybe that'll appease him. So he's going to send a present to his brother. And this generous gift consists of 580 animals. Now that tells you how wealthy he was because this is just a portion of what he has. And those animals include, in his gift of the 580 animals, it includes 30 camels with their young. Now camels were very expensive. So he really had done a lot of breeding with the sheep and the goats, you know, to be able to afford all these animals. So what he plans to do, 
in order to make the best impact on his brother is he divides all these 580 animals into five droves. They're called a drove because the shepherds were going to be behind each group of animals driving them. So the impression would be that Esau would first see all the animals and then the shepherds behind each drove would say, this is a gift from Jacob, your servant. Okay, so what he does, and I don't think there's any significance, but he sends out first a drove of goats and the shepherds, the goat shepherds behind, then a drove of sheep with the shepherds behind, then camels and then cattle, and last of all, the donkeys. So, um, Jacob was hoping that by the time that fifth drove of animals was presented, Esau's anger would be appeased. That's what he says in verse 20, if you see the word appeased, and that they then would be reconciled in peace. His, the rest of his plan, now when Jacob got within viewing sight... The rest of his plan was that he was going to then send forth his family. Now, this is really bad. <laughs> and no wonder you, you understand why Joseph's brothers hated him so much and were jealous of him. But the order of sending out his family is that he is going to, first of all, send out the concubines with their children. And notice it says their children. I don't know what verse that is, wherever it is. 33.1, there it is, okay? It says, uh, he's, go, he's divided the children unto Leah and unto Rachel and the two handmaids, and he put the handmaids and their children. So did those children get credited to Rachel and Leah like we talked about last time? No. And Jacob realized, you know, they belong to the handmaids. So what he does is he puts the concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah, out front with their kids. So they're like the front line. If Esau's going to kill anybody, they get killed first. <laughs> And then behind them, Leah and her children, and way in the back, guess who? Rachel, his favorite wife, Rachel, with Joseph. Benjamin hasn't been born yet. And then guess who's going to be even behind Rachel? Him. You talk about a little bit self-protective. It kind of reminds me of Abraham and Isaac when they lied about their wives in order to protect themselves. So he was going to come up behind all of them. <laughs> He, but he has, uh, well, when he goes, and then, of course, he's, um, he's doing all this at, not to bribe. It's not so much to bribe his brother, but to be an expression of goodwill. And it's kind of his form of an apology for having wronged his brother. And rather than demanding his lordship, he had this plan that he was going to approach him and bow to him and all this stuff, which he does do. He's really attempting to show Esau, I am really, really sorry. Let me live, please. <laughs> so then he goes to bed for the second night. And that's in verse 21. It says he lodged himself, but he couldn't sleep. He could not sleep. He had no confidence whatsoever that his gift was going to appease his brother. And we learn this from his words of verse 20, where he says, peradventure, he will accept me. Now, I know that's not a word we use too much. Do you use peradventure? <laughs> it means perhaps. Perhaps he will accept me. Maybe. But he doesn't have a lot of confidence in it. As far as he knew, that night could be the last night of his life. It could be the last night for his family as well. Because the next day, 
They knew Esau was going to be there. They could figure how many miles it could travel a day. He was hoping, you know, one side of Esau was hoping that the Lord would pull through for him, perhaps by speaking to Esau in another warning dream that night, as he had done with Laban, you know, the night before Laban was going to uh, come and take him either back to Haran as a captive for the rest of his life or kill him and take his family back, the Lord had intervened, hadn't he? By giving Laban a dream, basically saying, don't say good or bad about my servant. Don't you dare touch him. And it got Laban's attention. So I'm sure Esau, I mean, Jacob is thinking, oh, I hope God will give Esau a dream like that and scare him off. So in his spirit, he wants to believe that. But his flesh, what is his flesh focused on? Do we not have this same battle, you know, where we pray, pray for the Lord to do something to intervene? And, and, but yet then our, our flesh is focused on our circumstances, isn't it? His flesh is focused on is Esau and his strength and his anger and the force that's with him. Jacob also knew that in the case of the Lord's intervention with Laban, he, Jacob, was the innocent party in that one, wasn't he? He had been wronged by Laban, and so he was the innocent. Not so true in this case with Esau. He was not so innocent, and his guilt was flaming his fear. So it was going to be a long, restless night. Actually, as he lodged himself down for that night, he had no idea (laughs) that in addition to being a long, restless night, it would be a long wrestling night. It would be a night that would have a lasting effect on both his physical and his spiritual walk. So he's in a state of unrest and anxiety. In spite of all the livestock gift that he has sent to Esau, and in spite of the fact that he had spent time in prayer, in spite of the fact that he saw angels, you know, protecting him and all the promises, but he's still in a state of anxiety. And we know this because he couldn't sleep and he got up in the middle of the night. Have you ever done that? Figured, I can't sleep. I might as well get something done. So I'll go vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's what he, you know, well, I might as well get something accomplished. So what he does is he, he wakes up his wives and his children And he takes them across the Jabbok River. Now, he's come from the north, okay? And he comes to the Jabbok, and he's on the north side of the Jabbok. He wakes up his family, and he takes his family down to the, across the Jabbok, where it's, you know, not running so fast and shallow, and they can cross over. And he takes them all to the south side of the Jabbok. Then he comes back across just himself, And with his shepherds, uh, he takes all his livestock again across the Jabbok to the south side. Okay? Now, um, what he's thinking is he might as well go ahead and and get that over with um, before Esau's arrival the next day. Now, in moving everyone and everything to the south, the southern side of the Jabbok River... um, we learn that he has no intention of retreating from Esau because where's Esau coming from? The south. He's coming up. So if Jacob had any intention of retreating, he would have gone 
back up north. Well, he couldn't go all the way back up to Haran because he'd made a mitzvah pact or whatever it was called with Laban that neither of them would ever see each other again <laughs> and cross over a certain line. Um, and he wouldn't want to go back to Laban anyway, but he could have gone somewhere else, couldn't he? Could have taken his family and gone to the east, the west, somewhere. But he didn't. He went da- down in the direction that his brother was coming, which is... Uh, that's that's an indication of courage right there. Now, caution, he's using, it's a combination. He's, he's still struggling within himself. He's using caution because he moves everybody under cover of darkness because Esau probably had spies, you know, was watching everything. But he does it under cover of darkness. But it's also a combination of caution and courage because to go on the southern side is, is a display of courage. It's also a mixture of fear and faith. Fear because he couldn't sleep. He was so fearful, but faith because he's not going to retreat. So his movement, even his movements give an indication of what's going on in his heart. He wanted to believe the the Lord, you know, would intervene to protect him. He wanted to believe that, but he's also fearing that Esau would just wipe them out. He wanted to rest in the Lord. He wanted to hope that his gifts and his humility would appease Esau and save them. But he's not confident about that. So he's wrestling within himself before he ever wrestles with anyone else. His restless wrestling, (laughs) I thought about that for a title. His restless wrestling is portrayed by his up and down movements. You know, he tries to sleep, he can't, so he gets up and, you know. And then it's also portrayed by his back and forth movements because he went across the the Jabbok River four times himself. You know, cross, over, back, forth. Actually... Then goes a fifth time because after he has everybody on the southern side of the river, he goes by himself back across again. And he's over there on the northern side meditating. He spends the rest of the night, oh well, wrestling, but he's over there thinking and praying and worrying and whatever else he was doing. He just couldn't go to sleep. I was thinking about there could be an interesting study. Every time Israel returned to the land, she had to cross some kind of a body of water. And there was always some kind of miracle that happened. The crossing of, well, this is the first one, the Jabbok River. He sees angels. Then he wrestles all night with the Lord. Uh, what about the crossing of the Red Sea? Was there any miracle that took place there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Indeed. And then there was the crossing of the Jordan when Joshua went into the Promised Land. So I'm sure that would be an interesting study. So interestingly, the word Jabbok comes from the Hebrew word that means to empty, to empty because of the fact that it empties into the Jordan River. But it has come to mean in people's minds when they think of the Jabbok, it has come to mean wrestling or struggling because of what took place there with Jacob. So it's interesting that it would be here at the Jabbok that Jacob would be emptied of self. Finally, finally. Well, after making all his back and forth trips, he's alone. He's sitting there praying, meditating about the day to come. And it was still going to be a while before the sun would come up. He knew sleep would evade him. And so he's just struggling within himself. And then suddenly, just suddenly out of nowhere, the form of a man, you know, it's dark, so he can't see the figure, the face. Uh, He can see the figure, but not the face. But he knows it's a man. He must have reached out and grabbed him, and I'm sure he was just scared to death. He probably, his, probably his first thought was, Esau has sent an assassin to kill me. 
And this, this man, he's called a man, just grabs him and begins to wrestle with him. So the, ni- the next thing, the 90, and he's 97 years old, not the man. He's infinitely old. <laughs> but Jacob is 97 years old, and so is Esau. You think about this, you know, it's, it's interesting. But um, so all of a sudden he finds himself in this one-on-one wrestling match, which continued the remainder of that night. Now, who was this man? Who was this man? Well, we don't have to guess. We know because Hosea tells us, for one thing, Hosea 12, verses 4 and 5, Hosea tells us that it was the angel, the angel of the Lord, who wrestled with Jacob. And then he goes ahead and calls him the Lord God of hosts. And that is none other than the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, because God himself does not appear in the form of a man or the form of an angel. This is Jesus. And then Jacob identifies him for us because he gives a name to that place of his all-night wrestling match, and that name is Peniel, which means face of God. And he explains why he gave that name because he says, I have seen God face to face. So there's no doubt about it. This is, he's not just wrestling with an angel. Now you hear that. But it was, it was the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, exactly when he came to realize that this man he was wrestling with um, was the Lord, we don't know. We do know that he did come to realize it. But when? I'm not sure. Maybe it was with the rising of the sun when he could actually see his face. Had he ever seen his face before? Yes, he was the one standing at the top of the ladder in the ladder dream. Um, and I'm sure his face just glowed and he instantly would know who he was. Or it may have been when the Lord, with just a touch to the hollow of his thigh, dislocated his hip. Or maybe it was when the Lord spoke to him. I don't know. But somewhere in the morning, maybe it all happened at the same time. Maybe when his hip was dislocated and the sun came up and the Lord spoke, boom, he knew who it was. But he knew. He knew. Now, it's important that we notice the exact words of this event. Look at verse 24. It was the man, the Lord, who wrestled with Jacob. It says, there wrestled a man with him. It does not say that Jacob wrestled with the man. It says the man wrestled with Jacob. So, in other words, contrary to what is frequently taught, it wasn't Jacob who was wrestling the Lord in order to get a blessing. Now, he does want a blessing later on, but it's not when he's wrestling with him. It's the Lord who is wrestling with Jacob because the Lord wants something. What does the Lord want from Jacob? He wants his absolute surrender to him. He wants him to die to self. Now, although Jacob did, did want a blessing, he didn't wrestle the Lord all night to get it. It wasn't until the morning light of a new day and a hip dislocation that Jacob, clinging to the Lord, refuses to let go until the Lord blesses him. Okay, do you get the difference? So he's not wrestling to get the blessing. He's wrestling back because the Lord initiated 
it. You know, he didn't go seeking God to wrestle with him. It was the Lord who initiated the struggle. So as to really to show Jacob what his whole life had been up to this point in time and to teach him some important lessons about abandoning his self-sufficiency, trying to do everything in his own strength and, you know, just trusting the Lord. Now, to use this wrestling match to teach about being persistent in prayer, which is also often done, people will teach, you know, you need to be persistent in prayer like Jacob wrestling all night with the Lord. That's to take it out of context. Now, if you want to teach about being persistent in prayer, don't use the wrestling, use the clinging, okay? He clung to him for the blessing. Use that part, but not the wrestling. You see, to commend Jacob for wrestling is to miss the point because the one who continued to wrestle with the Lord all night long was the old Jacob. That's the old Jacob. It was Jacob's self-sufficient nature that kept him fighting with God instead of surrendering. He could have surrendered early, right? But he didn't. He just keeps fighting. It was the old Jacob who all his life had wrestled to take God's blessings rather than cling to him and depend on him. You know, when I think of Israel today, Israel, ever since the Lord's first coming and today and all the way up to his second coming, you know what stage she's in of Jacob's life? She is in the Jacob Christ struggling era. She is still struggling with the Lord, wrestling with him. And it won't be until he dislocates her hip you know at the end during the tribulation when he humbles her that she will finally cling to him we'll talk about that more at the end well as I mentioned in the introduction Jacob was born wrestling even in the womb even in his dealings with Esau in this study we see him engaged in this ongoing wrestling match with himself it's really all about himself he knew God's promises. He, he experienced God's blessings and his protection from Laban. And he even saw, as I said earlier, the presence of that angelic host uh, sent to protect him. But he wasn't surrendered enough to trust God to work things out for him, was he? If he had been, he could have put his head on, that, on a, even a stone pillow and gone immediately to sleep if he had really trusted the Lord. You know, don't we think so often that we have to help the Lord out by worrying? You know, stay up all night and vacuum and worry and, God, you really need my worries. And it doesn't really accomplish anything, does it? Not at all. Um, but if he had really trusted the Lord, the Lord gave him so many things to go on. You know, he's going to carry on the messianic line. He's going to go. He said, I'll take you back to the land safely. All these promises and the angels he knew were there. Even if he still couldn't see them, they were there. And yet he can't sleep. If, if he was trusting the Lord, he could be like Peter. Remember Peter in prison? The angel had to knock him upside the head to wake him up. <laughs> and the next morning he was going to face Herod in a trial. And Herod had just killed James. But Peter, he just trusted the Lord, and, and he, there he was sleeping. But Jacob, no, not Jacob, not at this point. He's still Jacob, so he's fretting, 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 
um, planning, plotting, sending gifts, uh, being humble, you know, I'm your servant. Uh, he's, he's crossing over and doing all this pre- preparation. And he even prayed. He even prayed. But he's still uneasy and he is still distressed about the approach of his brother. He trusted the Lord in part, but not completely. And that's where so many of us are. Aren't so many of us still, you know, wrestling the Jacob part of us and the Israel part of us? And now, even though he acknowledged to God his unworthiness to receive his mercies and his kindnesses and his covenant truths, he wasn't at the end of his own resources. He's still thinking he can do things in his own strength. A lot of men have this problem, don't they? Now, so he's still the heel grabber. He's still the lentil stew swapper, the goatskin covered deceiver, the rod using breeder, and the gift sending appeaser. <laughs> but after doing everything that he possibly could do on his own, including a night of wrestling with the Lord himself, Suddenly, he's at the end of his own strength because the Lord reaches out and with a touch in, on his inner thigh, his hip is dislocated and he can't do anything anymore. He can't even wrestle anymore. A man with a broken hip cannot wrestle. So if he let go of Christ, he would just fall on the ground. He's in pain. But what does he do? He's clinging. Now he's not wrestling. He's clinging. And that's where the Lord wanted to bring him. And now he's clinging with the fervency of a man of great faith. When the pre-incarnate Christ determined that it was time for a new day in the life of his servant Jacob, he, the Lord, is the one who stopped wrestling. And he touched him. I was thinking about how, you know, during his earthly ministry, he touched many, many people, and he always healed them, didn't he? Well, this is one case when he touched somebody and he didn't heal them. He actually made them handicapped. But instantly, Jacob's hip was dislocated. That was the touch of God, and Jacob knew it. No man could just, you know, touch you, and immediately that would happen. Uh, And his touch may have occurred, as I said, simultaneously with the moment of daybreak. And Jacob's realization of who was wrestling with him. Now, the Lord could have ended that wrestling mass match at any time during the night, couldn't he? He could have. But, but he's, he's um, showing something. He's teaching something else here. The long night of wrestling with Jacob serves as an object lesson on his patience with our fleshly struggles. As with many of us, Jacob was very, very self-determined, strong-willed. It was difficult for him to admit that he was at the end of his own strength, at the end of himself. Um, and this also shows us the Lord's long-suffering, his patience with Israel, doesn't it? She's been struggling with him, wrestling with him a long time, and he has been very, very patient. Well, when the Lord saw he prevailed not against Jacob, in other words, Jacob wasn't going to surrender on his own, That's when he brought his resistance to a very quick end. Um, The Lord often finds it necessary to touch his people, his wrestling children, in some way to break their resistance to his will. And that's a scary place to be. I'd rather 
surrender to his will without the dislocated hip or without the Jonah experience, wouldn't you? But he'll do that with people that just keep fighting him, resisting his will. He may touch them and bring them flat on their back. Well, as soon as he couldn't wrestle any longer, Jacob began to cling, refusing to let go of the Lord until he received his blessing, verse 26. And in that clinging, we see the other side of Jacob's strong-willed nature. He was not only strong-willed when it came to depending on his own resources, that was kind of the negative side of things, but he was also strong-willed in a more positive way. That was in his desire for the spiritual blessings of God. Now, this man was the spiritual twin, wasn't he? He's always wanted a relationship with the Lord. You know, his flesh got in the way, but he's always wanted the blessings, hasn't he? The covenant blessings. He desired to be in the messianic line. So that was all good. That was good. In fact, he desired it so much that uh, that is why he he used his own devices to get those things to gain them it was that same deep decisive desire that caused him stubbornly even in his pain now i don't know if you've ever had a dislocated hip i haven't and i don't want to but i'm sure it's very very painful very painful and yet even in his pain um he cries out that he is not going to release his grip (laughs) he's always grabbing something isn't he He's not going to leave, uh, release his grip until the Lord blesses him. Now, you have to admire him, don't you, for his resolve and for his fortitude. He's helpless. He's lame. He's in pain. And yet he clings with a desperate tenacity to the very one who has just crippled him. So what we find is he has progressed from a grabber to a gripper. <laughs> from conniving to uh, clinging from bargaining to begging this is this is good though the picture of of jacob broken broken jacob okay clinging to the divine wrestler is not a sad picture of a loser at all it's not a picture of a pitiful failure or a weakling it's the picture of a spiritually strong man him clinging to the Lord. That's, that's the strong man. He's finally broken of self-will. You know, people have it just absolutely the opposite, don't they? They're trusting themselves and their power and everything. And when you're really strong is in God's weakness, when you're clinging to him. So finally, he's dependent on the Lord. His clinging is a picture of a man of faith, a man surrendered to God's will. His walk would never be the same again. He would always walk with a distinct limp, but that would serve to remind him of the night that the Lord touched him and he learned that he could not overcome the issues of life on his own. That would also remind him that that was a real experience. It wasn't just, you know, 10 years up the road. He could think, did that really happen or was that just a dream? You know, but when he has that limp, he knows that really happened. He wanted a blessing, so the Lord was about to give him a blessing. If you ask for a blessing, does the Lord give it to you? Yes, he wants to bless. He's waiting for us to ask for his blessings. What was the blessing he gave him? Well, the blessing was in the form of a new name. 
He asked Jacob, what is thy name? Verse 27. Do you think the Lord didn't know what his name was? <laughs> of course he knew what his name was, but he's asking him because he wants Jacob to look deeply within himself and realize what his name meant, what he's been all his life as a grabber, a deceiver, a supplanter. Um, and Jacob, the only answer he could give, omniscient God, is Jacob. Now, do you remember the last time he was asked who he was and he lied? His father had asked him, who are you? And he said, I'm Esau. Hmm. You don't lie God, directly to God. God says, who are you? And so he answers Jacob. And the Lord responds by saying, verse 28, the ne thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. Now, Israel comes from two Hebrew words, Yisra or Isra, which means ruler, warrior, or prince. Ruler, warrior, or prince. And L, E-L, means what? God. Okay, like El, Elyon, El Shaddai, El Ochim. So what the name Israel means when you put it together is ruler of God, ruler for God, warrior for God, or prince for God. And so he's saying, I mean, that's a, that's a big, this is quite a change. From Jacob the supplanter, Jacob the deceiver, to Jacob, prince of God, or warrior for God, or ruler for God. And then the Lord says, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now another aspect of Jacob's blessing was that he saw God face to face. And he lived, <laughs> And that's why he named that place where the wrestling had taken place, Peniel, the face, the face of God, because he had seen God face to face. And he asks the Lord his name, but he already knew who he was. And you know, the Lord doesn't answer him, doesn't answer him because he knew that Jacob knew who he was. You know, when Jesus appears in the, when he comes back to earth at the time of his second coming, after the tribulation, after the time of Jacob's trouble, and Israel will look upon him corporately, Israel will look upon him whom she has pierced and mourn for him as an only, her only son. Is she going to say, now what's your name? She doesn't need, to, and he doesn't need, even if she did, he doesn't need to answer because she is going to know who he is, Jesus. So he doesn't answer because he knew who he was. Jacob had seen him in the latter dream. He had heard from him several other times. But on this night, he's wide awake when he actually sees him face to face, talks to him. He touches him. I mean, he's been wrestling with him all night, so he really touches him. Um, and that was with the pre-incarnate Christ. He would never be the same after that. Either would we, would we? <laughs> never be the same. He left that place with a new name. He left that place with a new power, and he left that place with a new walk, a new walk. And it says, as he passed over Penuel, which is the same as Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted. You know what that means? He limped. He limped upon his thigh, verse 31. Well, no sooner, now he crosses back down to the southern side of the Jabbok, you know, limping across the river. So that's his fifth trip. Five is the number of grace. He's coming back as a new man. He comes back to join his family on the southern shore. No sooner does he get over there 
Then he lifts up his eyes, verse 1 of chapter 33, and who is coming? Esau. Esau is approaching in the distance with his band of 400 men. Whew. Well, not only had the night proven very important for Jacob's spiritual relationship with the Lord, but the day was going to prove important with regard to his physical relationship with his own brother. Now, what he does is he uh, drops his elaborate and rather self-protective plan to come up behind his family. He still sends out his family in the way I told you with the concubines, then Leah, and then Rachel. But instead of being behind all of them, he's a new man. So now he passes all of them so that he is the first one. He's going to be the front line to meet Esau. And it tells us in verse 3 of chapter 33 that as he proceeds toward his brother, He bows him, he stops, and he bows himself to the ground seven times. Now, although Esau was the offended party, he was at that sight of his brother. You think about this. They're not just brothers. They're twins. They're both 97 years old. And I'm sure Esau thinks, man, has he aged. (laughs) And here comes Jacob. And he's limping. And then he's bowing seven times. I think that the Lord used that touch on Jacob, not only to affect Jacob, but to affect Esau. Because when he saw that, something changed. He was struck with a deep chord of emotion. It kind of reminds me of Joseph when he was reconciled with his brothers, you know. He was so overcome at the sight of his limping brother coming toward him humbly that he jumps off his camel or whatever he's on and he just runs to his brother and they embrace and they're kissing each other and They're just mutually weeping in each other's arms, it says in verse 4. It was a glorious day of reconciliation. I don't know what happened to Esau's murderous feelings. I only know that a change occurred. Did God intervene? Yeah, God did intervene. But we see that Esau forgives Jacob without even a single word of apology coming from Jacob. Esau just immediately forgives him Um, and they just stand there weeping tears of joy as they continue to embrace so that's a good end to that story isn't it it's a tearful one (laughs) but now I want to close with telling you about how Jacob's life is very very much a type of the history of his descendants you know Israel as a nation is still Jacob She's still, I mean, we call her Israel, but she's still, thank you. She's still Jacob because uh, she's still in the flesh. Like Jacob himself, she is divided into two camps. There is God's camp, which is looking over her and protecting her and preserving her. He has, through all of these centuries, preserved her as a people. He has 
you know, watched over her with his angels. And uh, then there is her own camp of her own self-resolve, you know, to this, uh, to this very day, like last week, with all her, her Iron Dome and all her missiles and her great pilots and her aircraft and her tanks and everything, she is relying on her own strength and her own intelligence and her own ideas and um, resources to protect her from her enemies. Is she clinging to the Lord for all those things yet? No. She's doing this in her, in her own power. Her enemies, who are the descendants of Ishmael, Esau, and Laban, are yet today all around her. Jacob had enemies behind him and before him, didn't he? Laban and Esau and Ishmael, his descendants over there. They're still seeking to persecute her and to annihilate her. Only when Mahanium, Mahanium, Israel's position of being in two camps, only when that is left behind and she is united in her her desire to humbly, corporately as one camp, um, call on the Lord Jesus, only then will uh, she be ready And he is the fulfillment. Not only is he the giver of all the Abrahamic covenant promises, but he is the fulfiller of all them. They all point to him. Only then when she calls on him, will she be ready to move on to the Jabbok, the place of emptying self-will and the place of crossing over to full surrender. And this will only occur after the night of great affliction, the time of Jacob's trouble, when her enemies are on all sides of her. That's, of course, another name for the seven years of tribulation, when she will be under, under another Laban, an antichrist, another Esau, even. He's a picture of the antichrist, one who wants to wipe her out. And during that dark night, When Israel is all alone, still wrestling with Christ in stubborn independence, he will finally bring her to her knees until she cries out in her pain to ask his name. But as I said, he will not even need to answer and tell her because she will know who he is. He'll probably do this and she'll see the nail prints in his wrists. It will be her pennial moment because she will see the Lord Jesus face to face and cling, cling to him. And then he will truly bless her as he has wanted to do for centuries and centuries. He will bless her even though she's been struggling against him And Israel will leave, come away from Peniel, knowing she has been touched by the Lord himself. And you know how he'll bless her? He'll bless her with a new name. Because Israel will finally be called a Christian nation. Amen. And with the beginning of that new day, the sun of righteousness will shine upon her in the kingdom 
and she will be reconciled with all of her enemies. Amen. Amen. All right, when you get your notes, make sure you look at, I've got 15, I think it's 15 other ways in which Jacob is a picture in type of Israel. Run out of time now to give those, but make sure you look at them. All right, let's close in prayer. Would you bow with me? Father, these same principles that we have learned by Jacob, about Jacob or from Jacob apply to those of us who are in you, in Christ, as we move forward in our spiritual maturity. The Jacob in every single one of us needs to give way to Israel. The flesh must give way to the spirit. We must die to self. We must move from being in two camps to being completely with you in your camp. We need to cross the emptiness, the void, the darkness of affliction, and the crucifixion of the flesh to come face to face with you. Stubbornness and pride need to fall away as we cling to the only one who can truly rescue us and bless us and give us new names as overcomers in you. The old must pass away for the new to come. From Jacob, we learn that all our, that our lives as believers are never meant to be easy. It is not easy to be a follower of you. And this will be especially true if we attempt to keep wrestling with you and, and your will for our lives rather than surrender. And so I pray, Father, that every one of us would do that. It's not easy to do, but may there be absolute surrender. We do our part, but then we just go to sleep trusting you to do your part. Because you will always do that which is best for us. You will work all things out together for our good and for your glory, which is what we want. We pray for you to be glorified in our lives. Thank you for this time together. Father, bless our time of fellowship. Put your hedge of protection around every one of these lovely ladies. Keep her safe this summer and her family. And bring anyone in our families who does not yet know you to yourself. Um, and help us to return in the fall just ready for more spiritual heartburn and, and bringing someone with us. May we all reach out to somebody this summer and bring her to Bible study. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in your blessed name. Amen.